This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Today we'll take a very broad look at rewilding. David Finnegan has a short piece about his time as a wildlife ambulance driver in the suburbs of Melbourne. And if you are in Sydney in June, you can see his play Scenes from the Climate Era, which we touched on last week. Then we'll have an in-depth look at how rewilding works with Oswald Schmitz. This piece is from guest producer Simon Walker. But to start... I'd like you to come with me to the foyer of the National Australia Bank headquarters in Sydney. About a dozen people of Muslim, Buddhist and Christian faiths are seated on camp chairs in front of two immense escalators. It's 8.30 in the morning and as the NAB employees ascend to the financial heights up one escalator, I imagine that Ross McEwen the CEO of NAB is coming down the other one. He has called the police and they are standing quietly to one side, about a dozen of them. But there are civilians too having tea in the comfortable cafe overlooking Wynyard Park. They think NAB is a friendly place and smile at the quiet meditators. NAB wants to keep its reputation as a bank that cares about the community. More than money is their inspiring slogan. This is what I imagine saying to Mr McEwen as I gently take him aside. Thank you for coming down. These people here are praying and meditating in order to connect with you or the public or with something larger than all of us. You might like to know who they are. If you are stricken by a sudden heart attack and are taken to the emergency department, one of these quiet people has spent his life being the calm, knowledgeable centre of emergencies. He will know what to do. If there are racial tensions in your workforce and those workers are vital to you, one of these people is the head of a multi-ethnic community group and he will know what to do. There are skills involved and they start here with quiet meditation. 
If someone in your family is deeply unhappy and you have tried everything, one of these people has spent her life counselling and she will know what to do. If you need an architect to renovate your house for energy efficiency and future proofing, she's sitting right here and she will know what to do. In your world of high finance, you also know what to do to keep capital flowing. I guess you do that very well. Under your leadership, NAB posted $4 billion in profit in the last six months. But there is a bigger context than the economy for you to consider. And I invite you to sit with us in this still place we have created. The banners are simple. Stop funding coal. But your thinking around that is complex. Your policy is to reduce your exposure to coal, yet your investments are increasing. It's so profitable, I guess. $3.3 billion since Paris. More since the war in Ukraine. These eminent people sitting quietly here, however, are the pillars of a society which will collapse if more climate chaos is unleashed in the coal that you are financing. As one of them says, to try and communicate with NAB in a quiet way that they could hear without feeling that they were being yelled at. And th that feeling that you're talking from your heart can sometimes be more communicative than yelling and, um, and, and all that sort of thing, which I quite enjoy too. Dear Mr McEwen, you are carrying an enormous responsibility you may think of it first to your grandchildren, a responsibility to your shareholders, your staff, but also a responsibility to invest in a safe climate for all of us. Sit here a while until you know what to do. So that was my little thought experiment, imagining what I'd say to Ross McEwen. It would be hard for me to interview someone like him. I don't think People like that come very easily onto community radio. But next week, um, on Wednesday the 31st of May, I think all around Australia, <clears throat> NAB Banks will be receiving a copy of the Market Forces report on their increased spending in coal. Despite all the greenwashing, they are still investing heavily. And on the 31st of May in Sydney, you can come at 8am to Wynyard Park and join a large group of people from Move Beyond Coal to demonstrate peacefully and eloquently to anyone who walks into that building, all the employees, for example, that we want a big change in what they actually do. And now we'll hear from the climate congregation gathered in the headquarters of NAB. Even as a mother would protect with her life her child, 
her only child, so too for all creatures unfold a boundless heart. With love for the whole world, unfold a boundless heart, above, below, all round, unconstricted, without enemy or foe. When standing, walking, sitting or lying down, while yet unweary, keep this ever in mind, for this, they say, is a holy abiding in this life. I'm in the foyer of NAB, and it's the big headquarters in Sydney, and the signs read, NAB funds climate chaos. People of faith say, NAB, don't fund Whitehaven Coal. And that was a um, Metta Sutta from the Buddhist teacher. And now I think we're going to have a Mos Muslim prayer. Oh Allah, please allow a generation of leaders who will be willing to act justly so that those who have contributed so little to the problems we are facing and have fewer resources with which to face it are not left to shoulder our burden. Oh Allah, fill the hearts of those who lead rich nations. Give them your mercy and compassion on poor countries already suffering the effects of a changing climate. Oh Allah, change us and use us in ways you are pleased with for the restoration of your world and the protection of all your children. Should I do the next one? Breath, wind, spirit of the universe, plant in the hearts of our leaders, political and economic, a firm desire for the generation of future and reverence towards all living beings. May those with worldly power have the courage to act urgently on the wise guidance of scientists. May they wholeheartedly believe in the sacredness of all life and thereby act to ensure the well-being of coming generations, justice for First Nations peoples, and fairness and compassion towards the world's poor. Amen. All we are saying, we fall in the ground. All we are saying is give our youth hope. Is give our youth hope. That's right, so just being all recorded on body one video camera, yeah, audio and visual. So you've just been asked to leave. Uh, if you'd please do that, otherwise you'll be trespassing. You may be committing an offence, you may be arrested, you may be charged. You understand that? They've said that they give people five minutes to leave um, and will take further action after five minutes. Um, 9.18 now. We'll out the, the gathering with a bit of um, Buddhist chanting and then we will leave in a peaceful way. The Metta Sutta, whatever living creatures there are, with not a one left out, frail or firm, long or large, medium, small, tiny or round, visible or invisible, living far or near, 
those born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none turn from another, nor look down on anyone anywhere. Though provoked or aggrieved, let them not wish pain on each All living beings, may those with worldly power have the courage to act urgently on the wise guidance of scientists. May they wholeheartedly believe in the sacredness of all life and thereby act to ensure the well-being of coming generations, justice for First Nations peoples, and fairness and compassion towards the world's poor. Amen. All we are saying, leave coal in the ground. All we are saying is stop funding coal. NAP has increased its coal funding and, it's, and even, even more alarmingly, um, they funded Whitehaven Coal who recently announced that they will start a scaled-down version of the Vickery coal mine in the climate crisis. And NAP needs to really stop greenwashing and listen to people of faith, listen to youth, listen to First Nations leaders, listen to scientists that in order to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees, there can be no new coal mines and NAB needs to stop funding coal. It's a very distinguished group of people when I look around at the faces. Why is it like a religious um, meeting? I think we, we give like this determined and dignified um, presence to the climate movement. It's a different way of reaching people emotionally in terms of like the messages that we need people to understand on taking action on climate. So we've got, you know, the youth movement have a particular way of um, communicating to the public about the urgency of um, acting on the climate and people of faith have our own um, tenor to the conversation. So I think it's important for every voice, every style of activism to be heard because we have to do everything everywhere all at once to address the problem. Yes, this is not something that's easy to do for me. I'm really actually a fairly shy person, um, but I have a very strong concern about the, the state of our planet and the fact that so many big institutions are pouring billions into funding those things that are actually going to make life unlivable on Earth. I find it unconscionable. I find it lacking in any kind of moral imagination. It, it goes against every uh, value, every moral norm. That And it just is beyond me that the boards of NAB, the Combank, ANZ, uh, the Westpac, all these large banks, they're supposed to be older, wiser men. Uh, mostly men, I guess there are some women, but they are leading us and, and saying that you're funding some renewable energy and bragging about that while at the same time putting money into coal, oil and gas in, in huge amounts um, is, is just trying to mislead the public, which is like, so they know they're doing the wrong thing, so they have to say a lie about it, they have to lie. So there's every level, this is morally obnoxious to me. As a Christian, everything 
all the things that I stand for are being betrayed and, and they're earning so much money um, and, and being paid to destroy our planet. They don't have to invest in fossil fuels. They don't have to. They can, there's lots of things to invest in. Why this? It's just for profit. And so they are actually wanting to, to destroy people's futures for the sake of profit. Let me put it as simply as that. Thank you. Okay, I'm Reverend Dr. Chris Walker from the Uniting Church. I was really pleased to be a part of this action with other people of faith. We did it in a respectful, quiet way, but I think an effective way to let NAB know that it is not good enough for them to continue to fund coal. If we are to save the planet, if we are to protect the planet, then continuing to make money by unconscionable making of funding available to coal mining is terrible. We need to stop it now. I'm here, my name's John O'Brien, I'm also part of the Uniting Church. Um, I mean, this sort of thing is outside my normal comfort zone. Um, to me, you know, this is a bit of a stretch, but, you know, I, I, I'm absolutely convinced in the reality of climate change and the impacts of climate change. Um, and I just think it's irresponsible for banks like NAB to continue to fund, you know, new coal mines when the world authorities, the UN, the IP, the International, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and other bodies have said we just have to stop it to have any realistic chance of keeping global warming to a, to a level. And did you feel sitting in their foyer with the escalators going up and all the workers arriving? This is early in the morning, like work people coming to work. A lot of people took a pamphlet. A lot of people looked around and sort of smiled. A lot, few people kind of went no. No. Did you feel you're sort of speaking to a large group of people involved in this financial industry? They're not all, they don't sign the checks, oh, you know? No, no, that's exactly right. I, I got the impression that, yeah, quite a few people were interested and, and, and look, people who work for NAB are ordinary people like the rest of us and, you know, they're conscious of the impacts of climate change. They have children, they may have grandchildren, they're absolutely concerned about the future of their children and grandchildren and, and the wider world as well. So of course they're concerned and I think that's what we need to do. We need to galvanise that concern amongst ordinary everyday people and say to our financial institutions and other people making these decisions, look we have to stop. Look, there's been good things about the fossil fuel industry in the past that's fueled, you know, um, huge development in the world which has lifted millions out of poverty. But we know now that the costs of continuing to use fossil fuels outweigh any benefits and we just simply have to stop. Okay, so my motivation of coming today was basically to try and communicate with NAB in a quiet way that they could hear without feeling that they were being yelled at. And th that feeling that you're talking from your heart can sometimes be more communicative than yelling and, um, and, and all that sort of thing, which I quite enjoy too. Um, so, okay, so yeah, I think just today sitting there um, with other people of a like mind was very em emboldening too. And um, it felt like people were looking at us just wondering what was going on. And that can sometimes be great communication. And they took the pamphlet as well, which explained about Whitehoven and the NAB connection. Okay, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Radio 
Marathon is coming up soon. If you are a regular listener to the Climate Action Show, you will have heard me bringing you stories of campaigns and elections and films and books, all urging us to take climate action over the last 12 years. It used to be a big team with many people behind the scenes, plus on air. Carly and Kurt, Erin, Kay, Michael, Natalie, Nick and Matthew. But now it's just me, broadcasting from Sydney. I had to do it remotely during COVID and now that's, that's the reality. It's just me. I will be delighted when you phone in a donation to keep 3CR going. The phone number is Melbourne 03-9419-8377. And you can give money online as well by going to 3CR Radiothon. I will read your names out on air in June if you give us some money. And it will also give me the courage to know you want us to carry on. Even better, if you would like to be a presenter and join us in creating stories about climate action, please contact 3CR on 03 9419 They'll train you and I'm happy to mentor anyone into doing this interview work. It certainly keeps my spirits up. Meanwhile, stay tuned and stay radical. I'm from the Lakota Nation in the geographical center of North America that we call Turtle Island. And community radio is about your community, your heart, which 3CR Community Radio is right here at 85.5 a.m. So it is digital, and I'm, I'm presuming you can, you can go worldwide with it. Um, people are listening in America to you, so talk back. Australia to the Earth. Peace with Earth. Thank you. Teokasen Ghost Horse. Community Radio is your love. Hi, I'm David Finnegan. I'm a writer, theatre artist, and game designer who works with research scientists. This is a monthly audio series about how art and storytelling meets the world of complex systems, earth science, and planetary transformation. During lockdown in Melbourne in 2021, my partner Rebecca and I signed up to volunteer with Wildlife Victoria. Two days of training, and then we were issued licenses confirming us as animal rescuers. And so we began. We didn't have a house where we could take care of recovering marsupials, and we weren't ready to emergency CPR on injured roadkill. So we started out as animal transporters. This means providing a taxi service, transporting injured animals from vet clinics to foster carers and vice versa. We signed up to WildNet, Wildlife Victoria's online database, and we started to receive text messages about wildlife incidents in our area. Uh, Injured ringtail possum in Box Hill South with wounds barely moving. Sick kookaburra, 110 grams, needs transporting from Albert Park to Mona Vale. Can you rescue one large lizard in sunshine, exposed on branch, needs small ladder? Whenever we could, we would accept one of these jobs. We'd load up our car with blankets, baskets, and heat packs. Our marsupials need to be kept warm. And head to the collection point, which is usually a suburban vet clinic. 
Because of COVID, we couldn't enter the building, so instead we'd be met in the car park by a vet nurse who would hand us a wriggling pillowcase and leave us to it. We'd make the animal as comfortable as we could in a basket on the back seat and then drive across town to deliver it to the home of the foster carer who'd committed to taking care of it. What we discovered is that there's a whole network of animal carers and transporters scattered throughout the city. We learned about the corridors and hotspots of activity for different animals, birds, reptiles, marsupials. We started to get a sense of the seasons and rhythms for different species and for the risks they face. A few hours on WildNet provides a snapshot of the hazards facing Victorian animals. A heavy storm is followed by a flurry of reports about possums injured by falling trees. Holiday traffic means a spike in orphan kangaroos on the outskirts of the city. Springtime means a rise in the number of animals attacked by cats and dogs. Of course, it's sad to encounter these animals in the moment of their distress, but it was genuinely uplifting to meet this community of carers opening their homes to injured wildlife. And in the dull flat line of lockdown with a five kilometer limit on travel from our home and my practice as a theater artist on indefinite hold, it was delightful to feel this pulse of life and movement in the world around us. Now, one of the most hotly debated topics in the world of conservation is the idea of rewilding. The term first appeared in the 1980s to refer to a set of tools to help wilderness areas recover from the damage done to them. In the 1990s, rewilding came to focus on creating large core protected areas, ecological connectivity and keystone species. This was the three C's model of rewilding, cores, corridors and carnivores. Today, rewilding has come to mean many different things to different people. Like nature itself, the meaning of rewilding is both adaptable and contested. It's adaptable because the meaning keeps changing. It's contested because no one agrees on a single definition. There's a general agreement that the idea is important, that it matters, but beyond that, everything is up for debate. Like a lot of people, my first encounter with the word rewilding was in relation to the wolves in Yellowstone Park. In 1995, a pack of wolves was released in Yellowstone in the United States 70 years after the last Yellowstone wolf had died. Throughout the 70s and 80s, the population of deer in Yellowstone had been getting out of control. But as soon as the wolves returned, they began hunting the deer. That not only reduced the deer's numbers, it also changed their behaviour. Deer started to keep away from the valleys and the rivers where they could be easily caught. That meant the trees by the riverbanks could grow back, with the deer no longer grazing them. Those new trees provided cover for fish, habitat for songbirds, but most crucially, they encouraged beavers to return. Beavers gnawed through the trees to create dams, and those dams created habitat for otters, muskrats, frogs, and reptiles. The trees also stabilized the banks of the river, which reduced erosion. The wolves also hunted coyotes, which was good news for the animals that coyotes hunt, like rabbits and mice. And more rabbits and more mice meant more prey for hawks, weasels, foxes, and badgers. The carrion left behind by wolves also provided food for bald eagles, ravens, and bears. So within a few years of the return of the wolf, the diversity and health of the ecosystem had rebounded beyond all prediction. 
the Yellowstone Wolf is an example of perhaps the most high-profile and divisive form of rewilding, reintroducing animals to an ecosystem where they've previously gone extinct. And there are many arguments for restoring animals to areas where they once lived. But for many people, this veers dangerously close to the practice of introducing species, which in Australia alone has led to the uncontrolled outbreak of rabbits, foxes, cats, and cane toads. For a lot of farmers, reintroducing predators like wolves or dingoes in Australia to a rural region is utterly unacceptable. This clash has led to one of the more fascinating phenomena in the world of conservation recently. Gorilla rewilding, the secret and illegal reintroduction of animals into an ecosystem. There have been a number of cases of beavers being secretly released into British wetlands. In Australia, activity has been more circumspect, but there is no doubt that gorilla conservationists have released Tasmanian devils into the Snowy Mountains, returning them to an ecosystem that they haven't inhabited for nearly 3,000 years. Some people want to go further still not just reintroducing animals to old ecosystems where they used to live, but introducing brand new species to new parts of the world. This is the idea behind the plan to introduce rhinos to Australia. Australia has never had a population of wild rhinoceros, but we did used to have the Diprotodon, a sort of wombat the size of a hippo, a browsing herbivore that filled a similar sort of niche to the rhino. The Diprotodon went extinct in Australia around 30,000 years ago. Our rhinos are going extinct in Africa, but it's possible they could survive in Australia. Advocates for this plan, including martial arts film star Jean-Claude Van Damme, make the point that globally we rely on a few countries in Africa to do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of preserving our remaining wild megafauna. So maybe wealthy countries like Australia should be doing a bigger share. Of course rhinos aren't diprotodons and diprotodons haven't been around for 30,000 years so who knows what would happen if we put rhinos in Australia. But Australia already has more wild camels than the entire Arabian Peninsula, so it's not like we're protecting a pure ecosystem. If rhinos could thrive in Australia, shouldn't Australia try to take them in? If Jean-Claude Van Damme thinks it's a good idea, is that an argument in its favour or against it? And these are just some of the debates raised by rewilding. So rewilding seems to encourage bold and optimistic plans that look towards the future rather than the slow, losing struggle to preserve a vanishing past. But at the other end of the spectrum, some people argue that rewilding is not something we do to ecosystems, it's something we do to ourselves. In his controversial rewilding manifesto, Feral, George Monbiot argues that rewilding is not about nature for nature's sake, it's for us. Rewilding is something we should do for our own health and well-being, to shake off our ecological boredom. As Nicole Seymour points out, conservation has traditionally been a very dry and serious endeavour. Caring for the environment tends to involve a lot of sadness, shame, guilt, anger, and not much else. And that kind of emotional range really works for some people, but for others, it's not a very inviting space to step into. 
So rewilding is a chance to reframe this approach, to open ourselves up to other emotional responses to the environment. Rewilding can mean entangling ourselves in the environment. We can let nature under our skin freak us out, fuck us up. Seymour argues that queer environmental activists have led the way in this approach. She points to the eco-sexual movement, spearheaded by porn star and activist Annie Sprinkles and Beth Stevens. Their tongue-in-cheek manifesto says, We shamelessly hug trees, massage the earth with our feet, and talk erotically to plants. We are skinny dippers, sun worshippers, and stargazers. We caress rocks, are pleasured by waterfalls, and admire the earth's curves. We make love with the earth through our senses. We are very dirty. Caring about the environment in the 21st century means metabolizing a huge amount of loss and grief. The loss of environments and species that you grew up with, the grief for those losses still to come. We live in a depleted, fraying biosphere made up of agricultural systems, feral animals, and pests. And yet despite that, we have to find a way to fall in love with the world around us. We only have a few years in this world, and grief and loss is not a foundation to build life on. We have to fight for what we can save, care for what we can keep, and help bring a new world to life. And that's going to take all of our lives and many lifetimes to come. And there's time for sadness and shame and guilt and anger, but there's got to be more than that. There's got to be delight, curiosity, fascination, awe, and laughter. I don't know how to fall in love with the world as it unravels around me. But last winter, I felt something new. Driving a frightened possum through the outskirts of Melbourne at sunset, helping it nestle into a warm blanket in a dark room, getting a text message about another delivery to do before dawn, the birds settling in for the night, and teenagers buying drugs in the car park where we're collecting another marsupial. Isn't that love that comes over you then? ACR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station radical and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Now I'd like to introduce to you a new um, journalist who is going to help us with this program from time to time. His name is Simon Walker. So welcome, Simon. I'd like you to tell the listeners just about yourself and how you found your way to climate action. Uh, thank you, Vivian. It's a pleasure to be contributing to the show. Um, I found my way to climate action show all the way from the UK, actually. So I moved to Melbourne um, about eight months ago now. And the reason being, just because I needed to get out of the country and find something new, um, look for more opportunities, gain experience in different fields, and see what really suits me. 
Um, I've been interested in uh, environmental and animal welfare since I was about 18, um, when I first watched my some nature documentaries, particularly Blackfish, which is about um, killer whales um, stuck in SeaWorld. So that was what kind of um, really kick-started my activism and made me think, oh, okay, you know, there's, there's more to uh, life than, you know, what we see on our side. You know, there's other animals, there's, there's nature out there that also needs um, this spotlight as well. Yeah. So since then, yeah, it's been really... I've been really trying to boost my lifestyle in which in a way which can help other species out and the environment around me. Um, and I'm getting to the point now where I want to um, not just change my lifestyle, but help other people change theirs too. Yeah. So that's why I'm on the Climate Action Show now and also volunteering for some uh, environmental organisations. Great. Yeah, and radio is a good way because we think of always all the nature documentary. It's all video, visual. We, we see those marvellous photography under the ocean that people would never have seen before and our generation is the one who now knows about these wonders of nature you know down wombat holes you can see a birth of a baby and all this I think that video visual world has helped us a lot but the radio is another medium I think at reaching people's hearts and and energizing them to do something about the conservation because it's all under enormous enormous stress especially by habitat loss from logging and mm. Yeah, and the other parts of climate change in the ocean warming mm. and so on. So your talk today is on rewilding. Um, so the person I've interviewed is Oswald Schmitz. He is a researcher at Yale University. Um, he's done this study uh, which looks at the, the way that animals can help contribute to the uh, us keeping the climate down below 1.5 degrees. So he says that, you know, it's not just about rewilding. It's not just about bringing back trees and um, bringing back different um, biodiversity in terms of plant life. It's also about the animals that help maintain those plant species thriving or keeping them in control at the same time. Um, it's more of an interconnected relationship between animals and plants. And it's basically it's saying that we can't try and manipulate nature in the way that we want. We can't say to nature, we're going to build, we're going to grow these trees and that's going to store the carbon. It's more about letting nature do the work itself, bringing back the animals as well as the plants. And yeah, just, just having it work its own way and be able to um, enhance the carbon sink as much as it possibly can. That's wonderful. Okay, so let's go. Let's hear from this man on rewilding. Oswald Smith is a professor of populations and community ecology in the Yale University School of the Environment focusing on biodiversity and ecosystem services. His latest study, published in March, connects the dots between biodiversity loss and climate change. The study, published in Nature Climate Change and co-authored by 15 scientists from eight countries, examined nine wildlife species, marine fish, whales, sharks, grey wolves, wildebeest, sea otters, musk oxen, African forest elephants, and American bison. The data shows that protecting or restoring their populations could collectively facilitate the additional capture of 6.41 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide annually. This is 95% of the amount needed every year to meet the Paris Agreement target of removing enough carbon from the atmosphere to keep global warming below the 1.5 degree Celsius threshold. Here is us talking about the study. So the idea has actually been around for about 10 years. It's something that I've been 
sort of championing for the last 10 years. And um, the, the article right now that we published recently is just a synthesis of studies that have sort of taken the inspiration from the earlier ideas and, um, you know, done the, done the physical work to measure what the animals do to the carbon cycle. And we were able to amass these, these different um, studies um, and, and compile them and uh, account for the amount of carbon that they animals um, could potentially contribute to uh, uh, removing from the atmosphere and storing it in ecosystems. So it's it's a it's a compendium of of uh, scientific research that has been done in the field that measured um, these animal effects. These animals themselves um, <clears throat> have a tremendous impact on ecosystems. Um, some of them are predators. They control their herbivores um, that would otherwise damage vegetation. Um, that, that, and the, it's the vegetation that has the huge impact on the carbon cycle because it, it's what sucks carbon out of the atmosphere and stores it in plant biomass um, and, and soil and sediment biomass. Um, so the animals, the predators, can control the herbivores and, and reduce their damaging effects um, when those herbivores um, are heavy consumers of vegetation. But sometimes those herbivores also counterintuitively don't damage you know, the vegetation in a way that you might think. Uh, for example, the Af African elephants in the Congo Basin, um, they do trample understory trees, um, they eat understory vegetation, but What's really intriguing is that they also eat fruits and disperse the seeds of the tall trees that form the canopy of the forest. And it's the canopy trees that store the most carbon. And so the elephants actually help uh, disperse the seeds of those trees and, and help them germinate. And um, by trampling and eating the vegetation in the understory, they reduce the competition um, that those trees have for nutrients. And, and that just really means that those big trees take up that much more carbon on an annual basis. Another example is in the high Arctic um, musk oxen. Um, they certainly eat the vegetation, but they eat shrubs and they trample shrubs um, and they trample the vegetation. And what that does is it reduces the albedo effect that is, um, or sorry, increases the albedo effect. Uh, increases the albedo effect. The albedo effect is basically the reflection of solar radiation back into the atmosphere. And by, by trampling the tall vegetation, which tends to be green and sit above the snow level, um, it prevents the snow from melting uh, very quickly because you know the green vegetation heats up with the sun and then you get earlier spring melt. Well, with those shrubs gone, um, and the trampling of the vegetation, um, there isn't that much to insulate the, the permafrost surface. And so it stays very frozen year round. And, and so the muskox, um, yes, they eat vegetation, but they eat it in a way that, that actually maintains the permafrost. And if the permafrost would melt um, across the Arctic, that's the scariest proposition of all, because what that means is we get this huge burp of um, carbon back to the atmosphere in the form of methane. And methane, um, you know, over a, over a 70 to 100 year time horizon is 28 times more powerful than CO2 in, in terms of storing heat, trapping heat in the atmosphere. So um, methane is a very, very worrisome uh, heat trapping gas uh, relative to carbon. What is the likelihood of the populations being restored under current government policies and behaviours? 
people are now concentrating more and more recognizing that these species are you know endangered or vulnerable um and they do care about them you know the the beauty of these large animals is they're charismatic people know them they worry about their fate and so i think um governments understand that we need to protect them we can't you know go through another round of mass extinctions like we saw during the pleistocene where we lose some of these large animals and never to have them back um so i think you know laws will eventually come into place um to to help that once those laws and protection measures are in place you know uh, studies have shown that these animals can rebound quickly these populations um even though they're large and longer lived um they they can have remarkable comebacks and we've seen that in in Europe already where where people have put in really um good protection measures for a lot of the uh larger animals there yeah for sure i've seen a lot of good organizations out there doing some great rewilding work um around the world rewilding europe for one has been doing a lot in the road up mountains helping to bring back wolves and bears um so there is stuff going on but also, you know, there's still a lot of deforestation happening and it's kind of counteracting it. So there's a lot of work to be done. There's there's always work to be done. But, you know, what what's really nice about focusing on animals too, animals, you know, a single species doesn't live everywhere on the planet. So, so you know, it's a local solution. It, you know, so people can feel like because it's local, it's closer to their backyard than, you know, these global accords that have meetings in faraway places mm. they feel like they can invest in in a local solution and be part of the solution rather than rely on governments or whatever at the global level through cop procedures or you know global accords to to develop policies that that sort of try and mitigate climate change um focusing on animals in 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 local ecosystems i i think is inspirational because it makes people within their home countries feel like they can do something to contribute to the to the bigger goal and challenge. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. What could listeners do in order to contribute to rewilding the planet and uh, restoring animal populations? You know, um, we, we focus heavily on large vertebrates because, again, they're charismatic. Um, but... Um, you know, invertebrates, like especially insects, are are feeling the plight of global change too. And we're losing a lot of insect species because of the way we're managing our own properties, you know, our gardens and everything. So people in cities can even contribute by changing how they um, do their gardening. Um, here in the U.S., what what I would recommend is is um, planting wildflowers rather than exotics in your gardens, you know, use native plants and use perennials because then you don't disturb the soil so much. And, you know, it's disturbing the soils and planting annuals every year. Um, that could be quite problematic for releasing carbon to the atmosphere. So if you if you plant perennials and, and what's more is making sure that those those wildflowers 
are come from the local region. So they're adapted to the climate that's in the region too, right? Rather than, mm -hmm. so if you're living in a dry area, don't bring in water loving plants where you have to water them a lot or fertilize them a lot um, to keep them alive. Because what that means then is again, you're, you're disturbing the soil, disrupting the soil and releasing carbon. Um, um, and, and so, you know, thinking hard about just making sure you're using local species and, and reimagining your garden spaces and make them a little more rambunctious and wild. And, and when you do that also, you get a diversity of plants um, that attract a diversity of insects. And then you, you know, you improve the pollinator abundance and diversity, and you can also improve um, a whole variety of other beetles and, and, and other kinds of species that are really beneficial to um, healthy soils and healthy, healthy urban ecosystems, if you will. Yeah, I think the ideals of a garden now just become this artificial landscape. Uh, people use pesticides and insecticides. Uh, people have really short grass or even astroturf nowadays, just trying to keep the um, parts of nature that they prefer and then getting rid of the sides that they don't particularly like. Maybe it's the insects crawling on their skin. And what is really needed is to have a shift in mindset uh, embrace that messy side of nature because that's where nature thrives and that's where biodiversity comes back. And, and you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be ugly and weedy, right? You, you can create wonderful aesthetics, you know, and, and, and again, if you go back to Victorian times, the British garden, you know, wildflower garden, not the lawns, but, you know, the way they had their wildflower gardens is an example of how that can be done. It's just... Um, I think, you know, the, the manicured lawns is the most expedient way to actually, you know, take care of a yard um, because you can just mow it once a week and it's done, you know, and you water it occasionally or whatever. But, um, you know, with with the gardening also, um, when you plant your perennials, you plant them so that they flower throughout the year. You know, you plant different species that that um, uh, flower in different parts of the summer or fall. And, and so... Um, it also in, is inspirational to, to, you know, think about the color palettes and, and you know, how these different species will flourish together. It, it really um, is a wonderful way to connect back to nature in your backyard without having all of the scary, you know, worrisome things happening like, a, you know, having a large predator in your backyard or whatever. Mm. You know. So in March, it was reported that the UK government will be spending $20 billion over 20 years. Uh, in the development of carbon capture technology. Uh, what are the benefits of rewilding over new technologies in capturing and storing greenhouse gases? Well, first off, um, <clears throat> what we projected to, um, um, uh, in terms of carbon uh, taken up by, by ecosystems that these animals are part of, the amount of carbon is equivalent to what you know the the IPCC projects that carbon capture technology can can take out of the atmosphere also. So it's it's on par with what the hope is for the technology. So what that means is we already have the ability in place, right? We don't need to invent new technology. That technology is well, nature. Nature's proven that it can do it. Nature's also proven that it won't be harmful to us by doing that. Um, the technology isn't proven, um, but again, I'm not I'm not suggesting that we do 
a single solution. We need a portfolio of solutions. We need a variety of solutions, right? Um, and so capture technology that, you know, attached to smokestacks to take emissions out of the atmosphere or, um, you know, being able to capture emissions from other technology and store it on the, help store it on the planet um, can be really, really um, important in reaching net zero. But again, as I said, we're never going to um, be able to stop a rise of 1.5 degrees C unless we suck more carbon out of the atmosphere that's residing there already. Um, the big challenge for us on the planet is even if we transition to green technology tomorrow and had renewable energy generation, um, the, the planet would still warm beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's because there's enough CO2 in the atmosphere um, that built up since the start of the Industrial Revolution um, that we would still be trapping a lot of heat. And so we have to suck all of that CO2 out. And where do we store it? Well, technology doesn't have the places to store it, right? There aren't enough wine, uh, mine wells or anything to put it into. What we need to do is store it in ecosystems. And the only way to get it in ecosystems is to have the natural players in the ecosystems actually doing their jobs. And so um, I think, you know, looking to nature to help us, you know, solve our problems is probably one of the better ways and the more safe ways of, of actually mitigating climate change. So this study is very positive news and, you know, it's a very plausible solution to trying to keep us below 1.5 degrees. But it's as I've seen I've seen you say before that it's you know not the be all and end all. Uh, there's still work to be done in phasing out fossil fuels as well. Yeah, certainly. It, as I said, it, we have to take a multi pronged approach. Um, we we need to certainly wean ourselves off of fossil fuels um, and and transition to renewable energy. You know, but that also comes at a cost because you have to dig up the soil and ground to get the metals to build the technology, right? So it isn't going to be win-win all the time. But we do have to transition away from from emitting fossil, you know, CO two from fossil fuel burning. Um, but but also, you know, by protecting and enhancing um, nature ecosystems, um, we can actually help help you know take out that CO two out of the atmosphere and store it on the planet. Um, and, and, and really, you know, you think about the amounts, <clears throat> we're talking 500 billion tons of, of CO2 in the atmosphere that we have to take out between now and 2100. That is about, you know, six to seven billion tons a year. And right now, the, the animals that we identified can reach that, right? But if we want to do it faster, there might be other animals. So, you know, we need some more science to calculate what other high potential species there might be, because we know nature's doing the job. Um, there might be other potential, high potential species where we could improve their populations or protect them and, and actually speed up the rate at which we suck at, um, CO2 out of the atmosphere. And, and again, as you pointed out, and as we discussed, um, you know, with, 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 with European uh, protection, a lot of animal populations can rebound quickly, right? And and a lot of these are long lived enough um, that if you have stable populations, you know, they live for, um, 
you know, two to three human generations, you know, we're talking, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, um, and, and a couple of generations of those animal species, we can, we can actually achieve that goal by 2100 or sooner. Um, I, you know, it, 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 to me, there's so much potential that we haven't even looked into. And, and, um, so, so I would argue that what we found in the paper is just the tip of the iceberg of, of future potential. And, and I think what it, you know, by focusing on nature, it, it, you know, and, and because we can do it in our own backyard, it, it reestablishes a kinship with nature that we've lost for some reason, right? It, it is, we shouldn't be living in a human nature divide. We should think about human nature just all around us and, and us being part of nature and, and each of us taking responsibility in our own small way of, of helping, you know, to heal the planet and, and, and keep it sustainable. And, you know, we might think, oh, what I do is so minuscule in terms of the global problems, you know, the, 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 the magnitude of the global problems. But remember, every little bit adds up. And if you add that up over all of the people on the planet, it can be huge. And, and so we can all do our little part and, and, and contribute. Um, so I, you know, that's why I'm, I'm really bully on, on nature-based solutions because um, it's a win-win in terms of protecting biodiversity. It's a win-win for um, you know protecting the climate, and it's a win-win um, for us to reconnect and 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 find kinship with the place that we evolved from originally. Anyway, you know. Uh, this is Simon Walker. I've been talking to Oswald Schmitz from Yale University, and you're listening to Free CR Radio. Thanks tonight to the following guests: Simon Walker with Oswald Schmitz on rewilding. David Finnegan, whose play Scenes from the Climate Era is now on at the Belvoir Theatre. And to the mindful people who sat in the foyer of NAB's headquarters in Sydney. If you are in Sydney this week, some action. Please come to the next action for Moving Beyond Coal on Wednesday 31st of May at 8am. It's at 2 Carrington Street, just opposite Wynyard Park. Move Beyond Coal will form a human chain to demand that NAB stops funding climate failure. The Market Forces Report Banking Climate Failure will be launched that day and NAB must pull back from financing more coal. You are all welcome, 8am Wynyard Park on Wednesday. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. Rare. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. 
Earth Matters plays at 11 a.m. Sunday and 6.30 a.m. Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is ours.